0: Well, good morning, everybody. Um, It is such a privilege to be able to speak to you today. Um, And Des, that was just so encouraging. Thank you so much for just setting the scene for us. Just wonderful. Um, I'm going to be uh, continuing with our devoted series today. Um, And we've been looking, haven't we, about how uh, being devoted to God means passionately pursuing Him in all areas of life, even work. Just brilliant. So, It's about being wholehearted in everything that God gives us to do, because God is utterly devoted to us, isn't he? He's our devoted father. And so today I'm going to relate that to something that does impact all of us and that we spend a large portion of our life doing, and that is work now as I was preparing for today I was having a little think about all the jobs that I've had in my life and I was thinking about the very first job I had when I was 13 and it was a paper round <laughs> so uh, I used to get home from school on a Friday, it was the weekend paper that I used to deliver and uh, the whole big bulk of papers would have been there on the doorstep delivered ready for me, I'd take them into my garage and uh, had to unfold them all first and put in you know, all those annoying free leaf <laughs> that fall out okay, your letterbox. So, pull those in. They were great for me because actually it meant more money. Um, but I'd put them in, fold them all up, and then stick them in my bag, and off I went. <laughs> Now, this was a kind of, I guess, quite a solitary and rather boring job. Um, It was also quite hazardous. I'm not what you might describe as an animal person, and some of you have experienced that firsthand. Um, But actually, I did have quite a few dogs that I had to contend with when I was ramming the papers through the letterbox. Now, I don't know about for you, but when I say the word work, I imagine that there probably will be different thoughts, Connotations, even emotions attached to that word for all of us. Some of us will be thinking about the job that we are currently contracted to do. Some of us will be mentally picking up that Monday to do list. Mm -hmm. Some of us will be thinking, well, I don't have a job. I'm at school or college or I'm unemployed or retired or a stay at home parent. So from the offset today, I want to clarify that when I use the word work, I'm not talking about a job in the traditional nine-to-five, Monday-to-Friday sense of the word. Many of us do have jobs, and that does fit into the wider context of work, but the focus of today's devoted talk is the biblical sense of work, as set out for us by God at the beginning. And my hope is that we'll see God's view of our work is far wider than we might first imagine. So we're going to explore what it means to be devoted to God at work. And I've deliberately used this phrase God at work because of its dual meaning. For us to think about what our devotion to God in our work looks like, but also what his devotion to us in this looks like. So seeing how God is at work in everything, in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So we're heading for some practical application for what this looks like. But first, we need to start at the beginning. What was God's original design and plan for our work? So if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to have a little look at God's original design for us for work. So at the beginning in this first chapter, we see that the earth was formless and empty and dark. And out of that place, God made everything that we know and see today, and he saw that it was good. So he made the earth and the sea, the plants, the sun, moon and stars, the sea creatures, the birds, the land animals. And then this is where we're going to pick it up in Genesis one, verse 26. He says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Let that just sink in for a moment. We are created by God, the maker of the whole universe in his image. I love how verse 27 repeats that in three different ways. It's like the writer of Genesis is saying, have you got that? Are you listening? Have you really got that? We're not like the seahorses or the whales or the elephants and the eagles. We are made in the image of God. And that means some pretty cool things. Firstly, it means we have minds So we can think and reason and argue. Those of you that live with toddlers will know this only too well. (laughs) But more than that, we have morality hardwired into our souls. We have the capacity for right and wrong in a way that just isn't true for animals. Secondly, being made in the image of God means we are made to relate. We are like the God of the universe. In that we are made for relationships. God the Father, Son and Spirit relate to one another in perfect love. And we are made to relate to God and to each other. To realise our potential in the context of relationships. In groups, in friendships, in family. Thirdly, being made in the image of God means we are made to care God is the creator of the world, but amazingly, he delegates looking after his world to us. Verse 26 says, again, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. Finally, being made in the image of God means we are made for work. Creation was good, but the end of God's creating work was the beginning of humanity's work. We are given a specific set of tasks, and in Genesis 1.28, God tells us what those tasks are. So he says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So lots of new people were needed for this great task that God had for them. They were to increase in number and spread out across the earth and live in it. They were to subdue it and rule over it. In the second account of creation if you flick over to Genesis 2 we find a slightly different version of the same instructions. So Genesis 2:15 says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Right from the beginning we were made to work and work is good. The garden was different from the rest of the world. It was cultivated God had started the work and man had to take it forward. He had to care for it so he couldn't just use it wastefully or make a mess of it. He wasn't entitled to exploit it in a ruthless, destructive way. But he couldn't just leave it either. It needed focused human attention, imagination and physical work. Now, I don't know how you'd rate yourself as a gardener. I've discovered that green fingers definitely do not run in the family. My parents are keen gardeners. I am not. Um, I actually currently don't even have a garden. I've just got a few kind of pot plants that I struggle to keep alive. (laughs) But, of course, this isn't about gardening, is it? God's first commission to increase in number and work at the garden, spreading it out over all the earth, is about developing all the resources of creation available to the human community in order to serve God. God didn't want everything to stay the same. He made a good world full of potential and he commissioned mankind to change it, develop it, make it better. So God's view of our work is not just traditional employment, but anything we do that grows and develops all the potential God has given us in ourselves as made in his image in the earth he has put us in. So this includes creativity in its widest sense, raising a family, investing in others, taking part in sport, learning in school or college, growing community it's all about developing the world God has given us, which includes everything he has put in it. And God has never cancelled out this task. The first command he gave us to increase in number and grow and develop his work still stands. But we know, don't we, that we don't experience God's amazing world as simply good. If we keep reading Genesis, we get to chapter 3, and that's where it all changed for us. The man and woman in God's perfect garden are deceived by the enemy in the form of a talking snake. He persuades them that God is holding out on them, that he's not to be trusted and that he's out to ruin their fun. Incidentally, the enemy's tactics haven't changed since that day in the garden, He still whispers his lies that God can't be 100% trusted, that he's withholding from us so that we look inward and start to rely on our decisions and limited resources rather than depending totally on our father and his limitless resources. God is the only completely trustworthy one. And yet... Adam and Eve eat the fruit that God forbade them to eat, and their act of rebellion has catastrophic effects on creation. Their choice to take control and eat the fruit rather than submit to the Father and obey him rearranges the whole of creation. Three crucial relationships become badly broken. Firstly, the relationship between God and humanity. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. And this is a picture of their alienation from God and their spiritual death literally being cut off from God. Secondly, the relationship between each other. Human relationships would be characterized by struggle from power from this point on. And this is illustrated so tragically in Genesis 4, where one of Adam and Eve's sons kills the other one. Thirdly, the relationship between humanity and the environment and work. Work became difficult in a way that it hadn't been before. What was supposed to be fulfilling and life-giving became frustrating and life-draining. Genesis 3.17 says, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. The fall is why our working days don't feel like those original days that Adam experienced in Genesis 2 where he was free to take care of the garden, develop its potential in ease and in perfect relationship with his father. It's why now people live for the weekend or the summer holiday. It's why even the best jobs have their dull or frustrating side. So how does all this fit in with living a life of devotion to God? Should we just sit tight, put our nose to the grindstone and hope for the best? Well, no, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, that God has so much more for us this side of heaven. The good news is that Jesus came to redeem the mess that we've made of ourselves and this world. He died so that our sins could be forgiven, setting us free from the slavery of sin by the payment of a ransom price. He pays his life in exchange for ours so the effects of the curse of sin can be reversed. Listen to Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So through Jesus there is restoration for the broken relationships between God and humanity and between us and others and even between us and the physical world. The first commission humankind was given to be fruitful, increase in number and fill the earth and develop all its potential still applies to us. But is now renewed in Christ who redeems all of fallen life. We can be a group of people deeply committed and devoted to God, to one another and to the world around us. Being devoted to God at work really matters. The point is not that there are some things in our week that are spiritual and some things that are secular. The question is whether we do things for the glory of God or not to bring his lordship and kingdom into everything, literally to bring heaven to earth. I love the message version of Romans 12. I'm going to read it to you. It says, take your everyday ordinary life Being devoted to God at work involves all of us taking our everyday, ordinary moments and placing them before God as an offering, communicating, demonstrating, celebrating the supremacy of Christ in every corner of human culture. The message of Romans 12 is do not conform. Our job is to reform, to transform, to change we're not to be intimidated by the culture of this world. We don't change it by becoming like it, but by bringing the kingdom of God into every area of life that he has connected us to. So, this makes Monday morning the most important day of the week. We get to gather here on a Sunday, getting filled up, encouraged, envisioned, and then we go to the people and places that would otherwise have no experience of Jesus, his presence, his compassion, his healing, his love. That's what it means to be devoted to God at work, offering our ordinary life and watching to see what God does to transform the people and culture around us. I have the immense privilege of spending my weekdays teaching four- and five-year-olds, and there are days when this is really difficult, and uh, working within the education system is incredibly pressurising. But for me, being devoted to God at work means remembering that above everything else, I get to release the kingdom of God and build a godly culture to 30 children and their families who might otherwise never experience it. Who knows what the ripple effect of that could be? There's a passage in Colossians 3 that I remember discovering in a new way when I was first training to be a teacher. And it's kind of shaped my whole vision for what a life of devotion looks like as I seek to release kingdom culture into everything I do. So I'd love if it's okay for us to turn to it. I just want to finish really by sharing some of the things I've learned along the way as I've had a go at putting this passage into practice. Now, so just before we read it, if I just tell you the context of this passage is slaves and masters, because Paul is writing to the Roman world and there would have been lots of slaves in Colossae. But Paul is not making a comment on slavery. Rather, he addresses slaves with dignity and appeals to them to honour God in their hearts, work and behaviour. So the principles of this passage apply to us as employers, employees, and all of us as we consider the work that God has put before us. So Colossians 3, and we're going to read from verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eyes are on you, and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. I love that. The first thing that I've learnt from that passage is that devotion to God at work means being authentic. It's another one of our jubilee cultural values. In verse 22, slaves are called to obey their earthly masters in everything, not only when eyes are on them, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Paul is dealing here with the issue of integrity. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. It's easy, isn't it, to work with integrity when eyes are on us. But what about when they're not? When the boss is out of the office for the day? Or when it's just us and our family and they're being really hard work? Devotion to the Father in our work means being the same in what we do, whether we're in a crowded room or whether we're completely alone. For me, this truth brings real freedom into my work as a teacher because there are Always loads of eyes in my classroom. Not only my kids, but there's the head teacher, there's other colleagues, there's parents, there's sometimes inspectors. And the touchstone that I use is Am I being the same when they are looking as I am when it's just me and the kids? Do I have the same level of patience, for example? When I'm being observed by the head teacher, as I do when it's a wet Wednesday afternoon and the classroom door is closed. A couple of years ago, I wrote some truth declarations that helped me to combat some of the lies that I knew I was vulnerable to hearing and believing, those whispers from the enemy, like we were saying, exactly the same as how he whispered to Adam and Eve in the garden. One of the lies that I recognised was that my success as a teacher was based on other people's opinions rather than God's. And so I wrote a truth declaration out of this passage that I declare now at the beginning of most days. I literally have it saved in my phone and I will speak it out loud at the start of the day. Especially if I know it's a day that I'm going to be vulnerable to the judgment of others. It says, I declare that I can be exactly the same, whether eyes are on me or not, because it is Jesus I'm serving, not human masters. Our words have incredible power. And I have found declaring this truth at the start of a day incredibly freeing. It helps me to recognize the temptation to fall into the performance mentality and people pleasing to curry favor, as Paul puts it in the Colossians passage, and instead work with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Psalm 3415 says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. It's God's opinion that matters most. And actually, as we obey him and do what is right before his eyes, we'll do okay by the others. The second thing that this passage has taught me about being devoted to God at work is that God calls us to be wholehearted in everything we do. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your hearts as working for the Lord, not human masters. This is about our motivation. Who am I working for? Is it myself, my reputation, my boss, the organisation? Or am I working for the Lord? Am I pursuing his kingdom and looking to bring his reputation and lordship into everything that he's asked me to do? Am I more concerned about transforming culture than I am about fitting in and being favourably looked upon? I've shared before how my prayers have changed over the years from, Lord, help me survive today, to Jesus, show me how can I get the very best out of each child in my class and release the kingdom in my classroom. Another lie that I know I'm vulnerable to believing is that my value is based on what I do, the success of my last lesson observation or appraisal or whether the parents have taken to me or not. But if my value comes from what I do, rather than who I am as a child of God, then actually work becomes my God. And I only feel as good as my last perceived success or achievement. We talk in schools about adding value. And what that actually means is how are you doing at getting the children to perform academically? Now, this is, of course, a huge part of my job, but I think Jesus sees the value that I can add to the children in my class in a much deeper way. When I am working for the Lord, not for the approval of others, it means I see my work in the widest sense that we looked at in Genesis I get to develop all of the potential of those in front of me. Yes, academically, but also by demonstrating the Father's love and acceptance to them. So by growing courage in them, by putting hope in them, by helping them to make choices that put other people first and by speaking truth over them about what I see in them. Now, that's my specific example. I wonder what that looks like for you. What does it look like for you to develop the potential in others, the others that God has put before you? How can you see them as God sees them? What does He want you to speak over people? We get to release life with our words. When we live out of the security of our identity in Jesus, then we can enter our work knowing that we don't have to do things in order to feel valued. Rather, we do things because we understand we already have immense value because of who we are as children of God. And this brings a renewed mindset where we are free to notice God at work, literally transforming lives and stories. And seeing how he might want to include us in this amazing work of his. And this mindset changes the way that we see success and reward. This is something Paul goes on to address in verse 24. He reminds us that the reason we can work as for the Lord and not people is because we are not living for the rewards of this earth. Verse 23 into 24 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. He goes on to say in verse 25, there's no favoritism. It's not a personality contest. We will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. So whether we are recognised or rewarded in a work context now or not, whether we even find what we do rewarding, being devoted to God at work is a rewarding way to live because it demonstrates that Jesus is who we are serving and our value is from him, not from our work. We get to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I wonder if you've been looking for reward in the right place. Who are you looking for reward from? This goes back to the value question. Do you know who you are? Do you live as though you believe what God says about you? As children of God, we have been given a place in God's family. We are sons and daughters, and we share in the heavenly inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. That is our ultimate reward, and it has nothing to do with earthly performance or success. It is freely given to us as children of God. Your father sees it all. His eyes are on you. Nothing is wasted or overlooked by him. He loves it when we get to release life to others through kindness, through speaking the truth, through drawing out the gold that we see in people. Finally, I've learned that being devoted to God at work means as believers we are called to lead others, whether that's explicitly on our job description or not. We get to lead others as we influence culture for God's kingdom. John Maxwell says, the growth and development of people is the highest form of leadership. As we demonstrate a godly attitude to work and look for where we can partner with him at work in others, we get to change atmospheres and bring God's presence into every situation. Colossians 4 verse 1 says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Paul reminds us here that Jesus is the best leader. And this verse gives us a framework for how we lead others, whether that's colleagues, new members of staff, our team, our family, our friends. We are to provide people with what is right and fair. We are to be the people who have the reputation of always doing what we say we're going to do. Of always looking for ways that we can honour others, even if we feel like they don't really deserve it. Of standing up for those whose voice is not heard or who cannot speak for themselves. The little things add up and our attitude determines our altitude. Being devoted to God is about chipping away, making daily steps to greatness, not so that we are made much of, but so that Jesus gets the glory as we take ground for him. I love the example of Dave Brailsford, who is the British cycling coach and general manager of Team Sky. Now, I'm sure Paul Norris would be able to tell you about this in far better detail than I would be able to, but... As I understand it, he talks about marginal gains. You might have heard him speak about this, where he looked at everyone who contributes to putting a professional cyclist on a bike. So right back to the actual creation of the bike, the guys that tighten the screws and sort out the tyre pressure, right through to the actual coaching team who train the cyclist and get him or her ready for the race. And his principle was that if you break down everything you can think of that goes into riding a bike and improved it by 1%, then you will get a significant increase when you put all of those things together. Right. I love that. I imagine our impact for the kingdom a little bit like that. As we do everything with all our hearts as working for the Lord, our ordinary... <laughs> Everyday moments can become extraordinary in Jesus as we serve him passionately, living out our devotion to him. I read a quote recently that said, passion transforms things once endured into things enjoyed. It supercharges obligation into energy and enthusiasm. And passion, of course, is another of our jubilee cultural values. And what's wonderful is that we don't have to strive for this. Passion isn't dependent on position, on title, on things, on people. It comes from within. Romans 8.11 says the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in us. Passionate, devoted living is part of the external evidence of the internal presence of Christ in you. (laughs) so passionate devoted living is part of the external evidence of the internal presence of Christ in us it doesn't have to be worked up doesn't have to look a certain way it's simply the overflow of God's presence in you that overflows and impacts the people and the world around you as you take your everyday, ordinary moments and place them before God as an offering. So, God made work, and work is good. We get to live a life of devotion as children of God, knowing our value is not in our work, but in who God says we are. And out of that place, out of that position as children of God, we get to take the presence of God into every part of culture and transform it from the inside out. So I'd love to end now by praying for us to be filled up again with God's spirit so that we're raring to go when Monday morning comes to follow the father and see what he will do. So can I invite you to stand? I've actually put at the end of the PowerPoint some declarations. Luke, can we have those up, actually? Thank you. I just think it would be good, before we pray, just to declare these together. Remember, as we do so, there is real power in our words. We get to declare, as we've continued to do all morning, the truth of who God says we are. So let's say these together. My value is not based on what I do but on who I am as a child of God. I don't have to do things in order to feel valued. I do things because I understand I already have immense value because of who I am. I can be exactly the same whether eyes are on me or not, because it is Jesus I am serving, not human masters. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we love your truth. We love the way it just cuts through the mess and the chaos and the lies. And we just intentionally stand afresh on the truth of who you say we are. Thank you that we don't have to be intimidated by the world. We don't have to be intimidated by culture. We don't have to be intimidated by situations. We get to stand on the solid rock of Jesus, knowing that we are co-heirs with him and our inheritance is in heaven. And so as we stand, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us afresh? Fill us with your living water. Fill us so that we are raring to go tomorrow morning into all the places that you have put us. Thank you that as we stand here as a people, we represent Probably hundreds of different places and people and sectors and areas. And Lord Jesus, it's so amazing that we get to go and take your presence to all of those places. Jesus, we stand here just amazed that we get to partner with you. And I pray that you would fill us afresh now to overflowing. Show us those people that you want to draw life out of. Give us those words that you want us to speak over people. Help us to see people as you see people. And I pray that we would bring heaven to earth as a result and as a consequence. Thank you, Jesus.